You're listening to the Inverse Podcast, where we explore how the scriptures can turn our world upside down. Or how it can be weaponized to uphold the status quo. I'm Drew Hart. And I'm Jared McKenna. And this is Inverse. I'm excited to introduce our guests for today. It is uh, Paul Harvey. He's someone um, I've read a lot of his scholarship. Um, He is a professor of history and presidential teaching scholar at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. He's the author or co-author of several books on religion and race in U.S. history, including The Color of Christ, The Son of God, and The Saga of Race in America, which was named a top 25 outstanding academic title by Choice Magazine in 2013. And our new release that we're really excited about, uh, Howard Thurman and the Disinherited, a religious biography. And um, and so we're really excited to have you on. Welcome to the Inverse Podcast, Paul Harvey. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, And just to get us started, um, I would love for you to read, if there's a a selected passage from Howard Thurman's writings, could you just uh, read a passage for us to kind of get us grounded in thinking about Thurman and his uh, ideas and thoughts? Sure. I have two passages, actually, one that's at the beginning of the book and one that's at the end. Yeah. First one, the fact that 25 years of my life were spent in Florida and in Georgia has left deep scars in my spirit and has rendered me terribly sensitive to the churning abyss separating white from black. Living outside of the region, I am aware of the national span of racial prejudice and the virus of segregation that undermines the vitality of American life. Nevertheless, a strange necessity has been laid upon me to devote my life to the central concern that transcends the walls that divide and would achieve in literal fact what is experienced as literal truth. Human life is one and all men are members of one another. And this insight is spiritual and it is the hard core of religious. That's the first passage. Second passage, short one. I have never considered myself any kind of leader. I'm not a movement man. It's not my way. I work at giving witness in the external aspect of my life to my experience of the truth. That's my way, the way the grain in my wood moves. Mm. Paul, I'm fascinated to hear what you would name as Howard Thurman's early shaping spiritual experiences. I'd love you to introduce us to um, this sensitive child who, who loves time in the woods. Um, mm-hmm. And I guess in particular, I, uh, many people talk of the influence of his grandmother, and I'd love yes. to hear you speak uh, to that, but also the nev- negative experience of um, uh, his father's funeral and, yes. and uh, w- w- how that shaped his life as well. Um, yes. Would you introduce us to these experiences that make the Howard Thurman that many of us are coming to know? Yes. So I'm going to start with the final one, the negative experience, and then I'll move on to the other ones. You, you mentioned all the ones I was going to say, as a matter of fact. Um, hmm. When he was seven years old, the, the man that he thought of as his father, uh, he assumed was his father, um, uh, passed away. And uh, there was a funeral for his father. And at the funeral, the preacher basically said, this is uh, a warning sign to those of you who are not saved because we know where this unsaved man is going to end up. His father was 
um, something of an agnostic and like to read Robert Ingersoll and agnostics of that of the late 19th century, early early 20th century, and had a reputation for that. Uh, and Thurman, of course, was uh, remembers being incensed. And the great the reason I bring this up is because it's this is a man Thurman who spent his life in church and who was dean of chapels and who was deeply committed to religion as a philosophical thing, but his his formative experience was this incredibly negative, deeply angering, scarring experience. And he returns to this experience over and over again in his life. He, he recounts this, the same story. So that's the sort of negative side of it. On the positive side- And, and Paul, this... before we move to the, the, the positive, um, maybe just to, to hold up that um, Saul Thurman was this gentle provider who um, uh, Howard remembers in this very positive way as right. um, a, a positive, um, almost Christ-like figure. And that was where some of the anger came from, is the lack of inclusion of this person that he loved in this funeral, which should have been able to be a lamenting instead evoked so much rage in him. Evoked so much rage. And because he was his father figure in many different ways. It was a masculine figure in his life, the only one really, I think that was also a part of it. Um, And some of it too came because as Howard Thurman grew um, up and grew older, he he had many reasons to be angry at the institutional church, the legacy of Mm -hmm. racism in the American institutional church. And I think some of that was projected onto the seven-year-old boy's experience not to say that he embellished it, but that it became like the sort of the founding point of his narrative to help him explain his own anger towards the institutional church to himself and therefore explain it to other people. And I cut you off. You started on the positives. Yeah. So the grandmother um, was someone very meaningful, more or less raised Thurman in many ways. And the grandmother frequently, and she she was a very strong woman, and she frequently told the story, and she had been a slave uh, earlier in her life, and she frequently told the story that the minister, the slave minister, uh, would would say to the congregants, you are not slaves, you are God's children. And that was the central insight that really goes into Jesus and the disinherited. It's really his way to work out his grandmother's insight and the way that she told that story by Howard Thurman's account with such fervor uh, and with such passion and with such emotion that it, that it became a part of Thurman's soul, um, as it were. And so that, that's one of his uh, major influences as a young, as a boy and a young man. The other is nature. Um, so we could call him a nature mystic. That's not mm-hmm. all he is, but that's a part of who he is. And he returns to nature time and again to explain the kind of feelings of the divine that we have within ourselves that cannot be explained and nature represents those to him. So he loved hurricanes, for example. He loved mm. big storms. He loved uh, the, the tempestuous parts of nature whose power could not be controlled. And he, he wrote very poetically um, about these. He was also a very lonely boy uh, and spoke to nature because it was his friend really. Mm. Uh, and that remained a part of him for the rest of his life. Yeah. You know, I was thinking as you were talking about his um, grandmother and his relationship, just that vital relationship that he had with his grandmother. I always think about the the one story that 
pretty much every Black biblical scholar probably overuses, right? Uh-huh. Um, but it's the story of, you know, the relationship um, that she had with uh, Paul and Paul's writings um, and just the way that, you know, the kind of, um, which, I mean, some people get uncomfortable with it, but it's actually a really beautiful way of describing the canon within a canon that everyone kind of everyone wrestles and grapples, yeah. right, with, um, and it's just being honest about the way that um, her own lived experience of Paul's teachings being so oppressive and used to uphold slavehold, slaveholding religion, right, mm-hmm. um, that he had passed that on. And that that's just like one of the more, like just the stories that always gets passed on about yeah. um that relationship and the kind of way, the multiplicity of ways that uh, her faith shaped his um, from slaveholding religion up to what he was doing throughout the 20th century and him making sense of that as well. Yeah. Yeah. His grandmother says basically the same thing that Frederick Douglass says. There's this thing that is the church and institutional Christianity. And there's this other thing, which is the pure, the pureness of the religion itself. Yeah. So on that note, that's a perfect segue to think, you know, one of the questions uh, we like to grapple with is um, the ways that Christianity can be both liberative and oppressive. And obviously these are complex and binary terms, but I'm curious, as you think about uh, Howard Thurman's own understanding of the religion of Jesus and Christianity, um, in what ways would you think of, describe him as understanding it as liberative and in what ways was it oppressive to him? Yeah. Yeah. Oppressive was everything that he saw in the American institutional church for basically his whole life. Um, and so he, uh, there's another quote in the middle of this book where he says when he was in India and he's challenged about the racist legacy of American Christianity. And he says from a 10,000 mile perspective, this monumental betrayal of the Christian ethic seemed oppressive. But actually, the, the reason he said that is because he was trying to work out in his own mind and in his own soul how to deal with the fact that this um, oppressive apparatus was so enmeshed with American Christianity. Mm-hmm. But Thurman, as a re- sensitive religious soul who really wanted to have a direct contact with God in that kind of mystical way, like how can we capture the truths of the mystical experience of God and put those in an institutional context, the the liberating truths of God, and how can we put those in an institutional context that can escape the oppressive context into which American Christianity has kind of jammed everything. Even um, groups that he worked for, like the YMCA, for example, and he was very much involved as were many kind of progressive uh, religious folk of the time, white and black. Uh, but he, he, got to, he got very angry at the YMCA because the YMCA just would not take a stand ultimately to really attack segregation at its core. It kind of succumbed to it. And he, he eventually sort of uh, dropped it out of his life, I think, as a, as a part of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, he lived the experience of the, of the oppressive part of the church and he wanted to create the philosophy of the liberatory message i think yeah but we you touched on um thurman's visit uh uh, with his wife after the death of his uh first wife uh to india where they met gandhi um i'm i'm fascinated between um uh almost the the different gandhis that 
are found within the freedom movement or, mm -hmm. or the civil rights movement. Uh, one of my mentors, uh, Jim Lawson, and uh, mm -hmm. his Gandhian um, uh, methodology uh, versus um, what Thurman took away from Gandhi, which seems uh, different parts of Gandhi's uh, project. W would you talk a, a little bit about um, the impact that that trip had and how um, uh, uh, the, the various ways, whether it be through uh, James Lawson or through Mordecai Johnson or uh, Benjamin Elijah, Elijah Mays or mm. um, now through Thurman, that Gandhi continues to appear at the time for um, the Black church prophetic experience as they grapple with white supremacy in America? Yeah. So I do think there are many different American Gandhis. And I think there's many different <laughs> American Gandhis for Black Americans in particular, because just the people that you mentioned there, they all take a, 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 a different uh, portion of Gandhi's um, teachings uh, than, than maybe other people do. And in fact, I think Howard took away something different than his wife, Sue Bailey Thurman took. Sue Bailey Thurman had a, wow. a more skeptical view of, of Gandhi, I think because she actually challenged Gandhi. She said, you know, if my brother is being lynched in front of me, oh, right. Yeah. right, what is what what does non-resistance have to say about that? Right. <laughs> that's a, that's right. a good question, right? Yeah. That's a um, hard yep. question to answer. And Gandhi's response was satisfactory to Howard Thurman and was not satisfactory to Sue Bailey Thurman. His response was, you must cut yourself off from all sources of evil. And Sue Bailey's response more or less was, that's easy for you to say because you don't live as a black American. You can't, yeah. you, you can cut yourself off from the British empire in India. That's a different thing than trying to cut yourself off from the sources of white supremacy in the United States of America. That's not a, mm. not a possible thing to do. Um, Thurman was mostly, he was of course fascinated by the, the sort of uh, the religious philosophy talk that they had. Uh, and he was most interested in that. And of course, he was very interested in developing how do we take ideas of nonviolence and apply them to the American experience. And Thurman took Gandhi's idea that nonviolence would best be practiced by a very small select group of disciples who were sort of all in on the idea and had a deep spiritual understanding. In other words, Thurman was not thinking of a mass nonviolent civil disobedience movement in the 50s and 60s. He was thinking mm -hmm. of a core, a small core of disciples who had imbibed the, the, the deepest truths of nonviolence as a way of life. And that's really what he was teaching to James Farmer, for example, at Howard University to, um, uh, to Polly Murray, to other figures who were important in the uh, mm. sort of in the years before the the classic years of the of the civil rights movement in the late 30s, early 40s in particular, um, and it's the it's a kind of philosophy that goes into the formation of the Congress of Racial Equality in Chicago in 1942, something that Thurman student James Farmer was very much involved in. Yes. Um, so uh, Howard Thurman took that part of it, but you know Gandhi also had all of these ideas about. Um, how people should live their lives economically and mm -hmm. going back to the land and spinning cotton and so forth. And most black Americans just, they just dropped that stuff entirely because it just wasn't relevant to, to, um, to, to black American lives. Mm. Yeah. Well, I, I also hear um, that through Thurman uh, influences that, um, and Drew and I were talking about this earlier, that both um, James Cone um, and Jim Lawson uh, 
uh, Cone very gently and, and Lawson in a kind of grumpy way made it clear to me that um, both how um, Thoreau and Tolstoy weren't the spiritual resources for the black church in terms of nonviolence. And yet um, for Thurman, those kind of influences um, and uh, Quakerism um, seemed to have been quite significant. And mm -hmm. whether it was an affirmation of um, uh, a spirituality that uh, was creation centered um, uh, or would you speak a little bit to those parts of Gandhi's influences and how they reemerge um, uh, through Thurman uh, and Quakers and, and that yeah. relationship. So Thurman was a Quaker really, <laughs> in some ways, in addition to being a spiritual mystic, because Quakerism really spoke to him deeply. He wasn't a member of the Quaker church or anything like that, but uh, the, he went to Haverford College in 1929 as his first wife was dying uh, to study with the Quaker uh, theologian Rufus Jones. Right. Um, it was this was at a time when Haverford College didn't admit black students, and Howard Thurman was there just as a kind of, I don't know, an adjunct student. I don't know what you would call him exactly, but he just he had to go there to study with Rufus Jones, and he felt like spiritually compelled to do that, much as he felt spiritually compelled to do this India journey. Um, he had his own kind of uh, internal um, compass for what he felt spiritually called to do. Um, but I think that um, Howard Thurman read Gandhi through Quakerism mm. and through nature mysticism. And if you put those together, if you sort of compile those together, you get some idea of, and, and so there, you wouldn't say that uh, Thurman got these ideas of nonviolence just from this one source. It, it's really a compilation of different things that he put together. One of the points I want to make in my book is that he put these ideas together in a way that, as far as I know, nobody else in 20th century American religion did. It's, it's mm. really unique to Thurman. Drew hmm. yeah. and I were discussing uh, earlier what gifts Howard Thurman might give us in terms of um, almost like a, a, a hermeneutic, Paul. What ways does Thurman's witness uh, provide new ways of seeing the scriptures and um, this, the spiritual life? How would you name Herman's, uh, Thurman's witness in terms of how it gives us new eyes to see be it um, scriptures or the spiritual life? So I think I'm, I'm no, uh, I'm no, um, uh, I have no great insight on this, on the spiritual life. I have more um, take a historical approach, but I will say that Thurman's, basic idea was that it was possible to combine two strands of spiritual development that historically tend to be identified with different kinds of people. That is to mm. say the kind of internal mystic person who develops his own spiritual resources, but is perhaps uh, does so and as part of a, a, a separate community or is separated out from the world in some way. Uh, but devotes himself or herself to the cultivation of spiritual insight. That, that's a kind of model for a spiritual life. And then there's the person who cultivates himself to transforming the evil social order. Uh, and what Thurman does is says those two things are fundamentally related to one another and they should not be separated from one another because in order to transform the social order, one must have the spiritual insight to see what must be done and to avoid being swallowed up by the hatreds of the unjust social order to which you will be subjected. 
Uh, mm. And the person who uh, is, is whose focus is on the um, the um, the transformation of the social order needs the insight of the spiritual mystic in order to go deep within themselves, in order to understand what it is, why it is that they are doing what they are doing in the first place. So for example, when uh, Martin Luther King is stabbed in 1958 at a bookstore when he's signing mm -hmm. copies of his book and almost dies and he's in the hospital for a few weeks after that. Uh, Howard Thurman says that he got up one morning and felt something strange that he had to go to New York for some reason. And he did, <laughs> he goes to New York and lo and behold, Martin Luther King had been stabbed. Um, so whether he invents the story or not, I don't know. But anyway, that's the story that he tells. Um, so he goes to see Martin Luther King and what he tells Martin Luther King is interesting. He says, if you continue on the path that you are on now, this movement has become, capital M, has become an organism that's going to swallow you up. Take advantage of this tragic circumstance that you have, that you find yourself in due to this event that just happened to you. Uh, but it's forcing you to take the time to engage in the spiritual introspection that you will need to do in order to move on to the next part of your um, movement journey. So take advantage of that. That was, that, was, that was his advice. And some years later, Martin Luther King wrote a letter to him and said, I often feel the need to, uh, King was complaining about being too busy and too harassed all the time, which he was his last 10 years of his life, which is nonstop motion. Uh, he says, I often feel the need for your insight of uh, uh, the, the importance of spiritual, spiritual contemplativeness in one's life in order to center down, uh, in order to have a clearer vision of what one should do in the social order. And he, he was complaining that he just couldn't do that because he, no one gave him time to do that. Yeah, you know, I always, on one hand, like, I really appreciate Thurman in particular for the way he invites us to seek that which was, you know, the genuine from from within, mm -hmm. right? Um, and I think, um, so many of the civil rights leaders really deeply appreciated that gift that he was offering to folks. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that me and Jared were talking about also was also struggling with the fact that um, he chooses that over against actually yep. living out and being on yep. the front lines himself, yep. right? That he yep. never is involved in the civil rights movement when many people look to him, right? As mm -hmm. hoping that he would have been more of a leader in the, in the moment than he actually was. And so I'm curious if you wanna say a little bit more about that tension between the kind of in, introspective mysticism and his writing at some points thoughtfully on social change, but never actually embodying that himself, but it, really- not, not yeah. Generally not embodying that himself, although I do I do think he does that at some points of his life, but not not yeah. so much in the 50s and 60s. Right. Um, so that's the reason I picked the second quote where he says, uh, I have never considered myself any kind of leader. So one thing that you could say about Thurman is that he had a real insight into his own personality, his own strengths and his own limitations. So, for example, people were always trying to get him to be the president of colleges and things like right. that. And, you know, he, he hated administration and he knew that. So he just didn't want to do it. And he said, this is not my calling. It's just not what I've been, I've been put here to do. I think he thought what he was put here to do was to counsel, disciple, mentor, comfort, console, advise 
the people who were on the front line. So there's a, he, he doesn't write this, but his wife, Sue, writes that after days of movement struggle, people, people would often come to their apartment uh, because they needed a place basically to fill themselves back up. And the yeah. Thurmans saw their role as providing the space to kind of get those people filled back up with what they needed so that they could get on and, and, and carry on the next day. Now, mm. we could also make a number of psychological speculations. Thurman was someone who was a very uh, ordered person. And I, I think the, the chaos of what could happen on the streets was something that I think he feared it, actually. Uh, he doesn't say that, but I, I just, knowing his personality as I do from studying him, I, I, I think that he feared and, and couldn't, knew that he would have a hard time handling the kind of disorder that might arise in these situations. And he felt that that wasn't, he, he wouldn't, he would not uh, be a good witness there as he might if he stayed behind the lines and did all this kind of counseling work behind the lines. So uh, whether, and it's something that made some people uncomfortable at the time. Uh, it makes a scholar uncomfortable looking at it because you're, sometimes you say, you know, why weren't you there? But on the other hand, he was at, for example, he was at the March on Washington in 1963, and he did not go because he was invited specifically, and he didn't talk to King when he was there. He didn't try to show up on the stage. He just went because he wanted to be a part of it. That's all. Uh, and he was just a person in the crowd of 250,000 or whatever, however many people were there that day. Um, and for him, like he saw that day, that was an exhilarating day for him because he saw a vision of uh, a, a more just social order in practice, at least for that day, and in the speeches given that day, and that that was deeply moving and attractive to him. Mm. That's good, Paul. Um, I'd love to circle back to um, the Society of Friends. Uh, um, but part of both my uh, love for Thurman's um, uh, what, what you described as nature mysticism, um, and for um, uh, his his love of friends is because it's something I relate to deeply in my own personal um, journey. And I'm aware that even describing 63, um, Bayard Rustin is someone who's um, actually identifying as a friend, um, uh, is involved in the, the organising. So this, uh, the, the focus on, on prayer and, and silence and nonviolence um, and a, a deeply individual experience while it being a collective reality um, it is there for both of them, but it's expressing so differently. The, the freedom in which Thurman approached um, ecclesiology and different elements, both the arts and uh, how um, uh, poetry, uh, dance, theatre could be a part of um, uh, worship ex expression collectively, mm -hmm. but also the place of, of silence um, his creativity, when it comes to this, I find really striking and unique, um, not just in the American context, but globally at the time. Um, how much do you think um, that was his own uh, genius? How much do you think that is the exposure to um, different traditions, uh, both in India and integrating that into his journey and then the Society of Friends? And um, how do you put together um, his... Uh, entrepreneurial spirit when it comes to a worshiping community and his own deep spirituality? Mm -hmm. I think he was someone who knew how to compile spiritual resources from 
everywhere from the nature he grew up with, from the Quakers he studied with, from the black churches that he went to. For example, I'll give you one example of this. So he was um, being examined to be licensed as a black Baptist minister in 1920 something, I forgot what year it was. Uh, and he was being examined by people who were very conservative theologically, had a you know literal belief in the Bible and so forth in this particular black Baptist church. And so they examined him for three hours and um, he didn't really answer them the way that they wanted him to, to answer. <laughs> he, did, he didn't believe in the virgin birth, for example, and he didn't make any bones about that. Um, but at the end, they finally decided to, um, to um, uh, license him. And when they did, they, there's, they had a, it was a kind of a ritual of the Black Baptist churches of laying on the hands and praying over this person. And you know, for him, although he felt very distant from these people who were examining him, Howard Thurman, the, who was a modernist, really, and these Black Baptist kind of fundamentalist uh, theologians. Uh, but for him, this was a moment of intense spiritual communication with these people who had just rather rudely examined him for the, for the past several hours. But, but he, so in other words, he could experience something spiritually just about anywhere and in the most unexpected of places. And he, he lived his life kind of waiting for these moments to happen to him. So he went to uh, San Francisco and uh, for the first time in the early 1930s. And he said, I got off the boat and got onto Market Street. And I felt a sense of being home that I had never felt anytime else in my life. And later on, when he has a chance to move to San Francisco to pastor this church, he does so because I think he's still thinking of this is like I'm called to be here for some reason. Um, mm. So, and you could put together what he got from Gandhi into this, what he got from the Quaker theologians. And he, he also was someone who was a very studious person and read just about everything. So mm. I, I was noticing in a letter he wrote in 1938, I think it was, he made a reference to W.E.B. Du Bois's book, Black Reconstruction in America, which is a book mm -hmm. that had just been published two years before. This is a classic, great classic of American history, but it was not a great classic in 1938. Nobody except Black people had ever heard of it because it was ignored mm -hmm. by white historians, completely, totally ignored. And here he was given a talk to a church uh, or to some, I don't remember what the venue was. He was given a talk to some venue and quoting from Du Bois's Du Bois was an atheist, of course, quoting from Du Bois's Black Reconstruction in America in order to make his point about the, um, the sort of limitless uh, uh, modes of oppression that had been imposed on Black people, and in this case, after the Civil War, because Du Bois was talking about Reconstruction. So he, he had assimilated Du Bois basically Im immediately after it had been published. Uh, so I often tell people, if you went to if you were gonna get a history degree as a college student in the 1930s, and if you'd gone to Howard University where Thurman was studying, or if you'd gone to Yale or Harvard or Princeton, where would you have gotten the better American history education? Howard mm. by far, not even close, because wow. Howard yeah. was 50 years ahead of its time as far as how we think about that era, especially, or most things, because they, they placed race and slavery as central to American history in the way that we do now. And at Yale and Harvard and Princeton, they didn't even, you know, it was barely mentioned. <laughs> at all. So, um, so anyway, he took that kind of historical study of the historical roots of oppression that also became part of his spirituality. He, he put all of this stuff together. So when you, you can read his sermons, but, it, but it's better to listen to them because he was an oral artist. And he, 
he knew that the be- the thing that he was best at was sermonizing. Um, and his, his sermon, so his sermons are really the best things he ever did, except for Jesus and the Disinherited, which is a classic. Uh, but most of his books are really compilations of his sermons. And But when you hear him give his sermons, he knows when to pause to let the idea sink in and impact you spiritually, right? He knows how to draw out the word. Uh, he's not a, a traditional uh, black preacher in the shouting mode, um, but he is one in the sense that he knows how to use oral artistry to compel you to absorb the spiritual message. As you be thinking about um, just your book as a whole and kind of what you wanted people to take away from your book and like what, what as you think about Howard Thurman and who is Howard Thurman, as we think mm-hmm. about him in 2020, what are some of those things that are just, um, if you were to summarize big takeaways for folks as they're thinking about Howard Thurman today? Yeah. So one takeaway is here's this person you've never heard of. And I'm going to introduce you to him because I think he's one of the most important people in 20th century American history. That's takeaway number one, because he's not a, he's not a very well-known figure for you guys. He is, but for like the average person on the street, he would be barely uh, uh, recognizable at all. So that that's actually what generated my interest to write this in the first place. Um, Another is this kind of spiritual insight of combining the, the, um, internal search for spiritual truths with the external activism that was a part of his life. Uh, I think that's, that's an important uh, part of his um, message to his generation and to our generation, to, really to, to, to any generation. Um, I think another is his, the way that he compiled these very different uh, spiritual traditions without leaving aside the fact uh, and, and, and emphasized um, uh, mysticism and these internal spiritual pursuits in a way that did not leave aside the necessity to confront evil in the social order. Um, and the way that he put those two together, I think is, is an important part of why would, one would, would want to study him. Um, Another is his fundamental contribution to the ideas of the civil rights movement. I won't say that the nonviolent civil disobedience campaigns arose from Thurman, exactly. There's many sources for that. Uh, But he is one of the figures who are kind of the the fathers of of the ideas that go into that movement. James Lawson, of course, is another, and we could could Mm. go on with various other figures that you could name. But I think Thurman is, is one central part of the grouping of ideas that emerge in social activist form in the in the 50s and 60s uh, and it's important to, to think about how historically about about how that happens so those mm-hmm. those are some some reasons why yeah and uh, so Jared and I both um, had a kind of mentoring relationship with or mentee relationship I guess is a better way to say it with uh, Vincent Harding who uh-huh. you know obviously, yeah. Um, writes the foreword for Jesus and the Disinherited. And um, Jared was sharing um, just a portion of this, just in terms of just, um, we appreciate, I mean, some of our influences, you know, just very Jesus-centered, Anabaptist-ish kind of, you know, Vincent Harding story, right? Coming um, out of Black church, but also 10 years in the Mennonite church, then Mm -hmm. part of it. Anyway, so um, just as a quote from um, Harding from, that uh, forward, he says, by that time, Thurman had developed an approach to, or better, 
a relationship with Jesus of Nazareth that took him beyond the central orthodoxies of American Christianity and, more importantly, was opening the way toward a liberating spirituality that made great demands on what he called the inward center, the heart and soul of the dispossessed. And we just thought that that was a good kind of intro. That's, a, that's about, a perfect, yeah, that's a yeah. perfect uh, way to say what I was trying to say earlier, but that, that's a much better way to say it. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And really the power of Jesus and the disinherited and what he's doing mm -hmm. there, um, I think is really brilliant and invites us, especially when we think about in the American context, the ways in which um, American mainstream Christianity has been an oppressive force so often in this nation, right? Um, that he's, um, he was brave and courageous enough to kind of follow Jesus into a different way, right? To think about the religion of Jesus, as he would say it, mm. yeah. in a way that really challenged um, the meaning and purpose and significance of Jesus for our time. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I was introduced to Thurman. Uh, I read Jesus and the Disinherited, I believe, for the first time, and I was researching for The Color of Christ, the book that I co-authored with, mm. authored with yeah. Ed Bloom, and um, was looking for any any kind of references I could to sort of images of Jesus in, in a colored form, white Jesus, black Jesus, whatever. Uh, and he has a he has a great paragraph in that book, absolutely phenomenal paragraph about God being imaged as a divine white man. And basically he's talking about the divinization of whiteness, sacralization yeah. of whiteness and the demonization of blackness, but he does it in a prose that's so pungent and so powerful. Uh, so uh, I was reading Jesus and the Disinherited then and kept reading it. And that, that I think that was, I don't know, 12, 13 years ago now, but it, it, um, it set wheels spinning that led eventually to this book because I, I wanted to know more about how this person came to write this book in the first place because I, I basically knew nothing about Thurman at the time. Paul, what I find so striking about that as well is when it was written. I mean, some people find uh, Baldwin's comments after the bombing of 16th Street mm -hmm. Baptist Church in Birmingham um, and uh, the, the blowing out of the iconography in the yes. stained glass windows of a white yes. Jesus um, and Baldwin's uh, questions uh, about um, the, the repair of that and, and really the repair of our um, uh, religious imagination when it comes to the person of Jesus. And yet here we have Thurman decades before actually offering a repair um, and uh, um, uh, Dr. Lawrence Carter from Morehouse um, uh, talks about how um, uh, Thurman talks about Jesus and there's a lot more talk of Jesus in black communities than the North American uh, white reality of talk about Christ. Can you talk about Thurman's Jesus and the critique it still is in 2020 and beyond? Yeah, so Thurman's Jesus is a first century Palestinian Jew subject to the imperial rule of the Roman Empire. That's basically who Jesus is. Mm -hmm. So how do we then understand Jesus within that context and apply him to our own particular context. And of course, the obvious response is black Americans are subject to the imperial role of the white supremacist empire. That is an American history. That's, that's a fundamental message of Jesus and the disinherited. Therefore, I think it's a work of black liberation theology several, as you mentioned, several decades before that phrase came to be, have a, a, a name attached to it. Uh, but I think it's there's some version of that that's that's been a long part of of African American theological history, and Thurman picks up on that uh, in the 1940s. What's interesting is you say that's early that he's publishing that in 1939. 
But, you know, he's basically saying the same stuff at Howard and 19th University in 1933, mm. 34, 35, like all of that wow. stuff in Jesus and the Disinherited. When you read his sermons from the 1930s, it's all there. Wow. It's all there, actually. Um, so the, the Jesus and the Disinheritors is like a, a greatest hits compilation of some of the sermons <laughs> that, that, that he had given uh, 15 years before. Uh, and he has he has this period from, I don't know, 19, the late 1920s to about the mid 1940s, this period of just explosive, creative, spiritual, political, um, historical insight. Uh, and then I think beginning with Jesus and the Disinherited and later stuff in his life, those are when that's when he publishes his books. But those books are all publications of the stuff that he was saying in the mm-hmm. 1930s and 1940s. Uh, they're just now coming out in form that that we can um, that that the general public could access. So the, it goes way back in his life, really. And I know he pushed against um, the the term theologian because he felt that theologians uh, boxed sought to put the divine in a box and he yeah. preferred the term um, uh, philosopher and yet his his Christology that he's laying out um, fits in like uh, you know almost the third wave if of historical Jesus scholarship yep. establishing Jesus at, like second temple Judaism he's talking about the Jewishness of Jesus yeah he's talking about the Jewishness um, of Jesus right uh, how how much was his time in India and um, encountering uh, Gandhi's Jesus, do you see in Jesus in the Disinherited as he reflects on his own experience of the prophetic black church tradition in America? That's a good question that I could never fully decide. Like, would he have written Jesus in the Disinherited differently if he had never been to India or not? Or would, it, mm. would he have come to the same conclusions anyway? I'm not quite sure about that, but I will say that his less so his conversations with Gandhi, more so his conversations with his audiences in India and the challenges that he received from those audiences and his attempt to grapple with those challenges and his attempt to come up with the written response to those challenges. That that to me kind of uh, spurred him to uh, begin writing some of the sermons, which then found their way into the text of Jesus and the, and the disinherited, probably more so than, than Gandhi, the conversation with Gandhi itself did, I think, uh, yeah. because he, he just, he speaks very movingly about um, the, the difficulty of explaining what he was doing in India in the first place to those right who were challenging him about that. He did not want to be seen as an evangelist. He did not want to be seen as purveying the Christian message, but he was there on the behest of the student Christian movement, right? International Mm -hmm. student Christian movement. That's who invited him to be there in the first place. So he did kind of represent it in a way that made him uncomfortable. So he was really working through all that and trying to like decide finally, what is the message of Jesus that can overcome or uh, that that can carry a message to us that will not be beholden by these strictures that he has been placed in in, in Western theology and Western society. That's also why he didn't like to be called a theologian precisely for that uh, for that reason. Yeah. And it's precisely, I mean, when you think about uh, the, the phrase that has resonated certainly in the black community, black Christian community, um, you know, the, um, 
that Jesus was for those with their backs against the wall, against the right? Wall. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, that's in some ways the summary answer, right, to right, right. Um, what you do with Christianity that's been tied to power and social dominance right. um, to dislocate Jesus from that, that Jesus is not a puppet for um, the powers that be, um, but is precisely speaking to those who are powerless and struggling in society. Yeah. Exactly. He does say at one point, what is the message of religion to those whose backs are against the wall? That, that was the, the fundamental question that I tried to answer my whole life. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That's so good. Paul, would you have a word of caution, or maybe I can word it like this. Um, how do we not read Jesus in the disinherited? Like I, I'm, I'm aware that in uh, at the current moment there's a lot of people who have never encountered um uh almost what you described as um the the, the truth telling that was found at howard university that wasn't found in the places that seek sought to mimic the um cambridges um of the mm -hmm. uk and the, um but the the american imitations of those institutions as they sought legitimacy among, amongst themselves completely ignored um uh, well, half the story had never been told. So it, how, how to engage them and generally and the politics of, um, sorry, and um, Jesus and the Disinherited in particular in such ways that don't co-opt them and into a white supremacist muting of his message? W would you have any cautions for people engaging Thurman for the first time? <laughs> That's a really hard question. Um... I don't, I don't have a very good answer to that off the top of my head. Honestly, I've never thought about the question. This is the way that you phrase it the first time that that's, that that's hit me. So I'm, I'm trying to run it through my well, head right now. As you think about it, I guess, because some of our concern was we've noticed that sometimes, and we'll say white people in particular, sometimes read it like, oh yeah, black people, you need to love and don't hate, you know, like the, yeah, 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 okay, the, okay, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's distorting maybe uh, some of his intentions. So we're curious about yeah, so thoughts the, the, around. The, thank yeah. you. Thank you for helping yeah. with that. So yeah. the the um, the way not to read him is first of all exactly what you just said, but secondly, to um, to read him as someone who didn't have a keen idea of how power operates in society, and have a keen Ooh. idea, particularly of how of how white supremacist power operates, and that the entire idea of this entire of this enterprise that he's engaged in is to demolish the foundations on which white supremacist Christianity, white supremacy in general, has been uh, built in American society. Um, so that that I mean that that to me is a is a kind of fundamental message, and I'm not I don't know exactly how uh, how that can be co-opted except for those who might co-opt it the way they co-opt King once a year and right every every king holiday he gets co-opted in pretty much the same <laughs> pretty much the same yeah. way so our, yeah. our liber or um uh when uh john lewis died this year someone posted mm -hmm. on twitter some libertarian person posted on twitter john lewis libertarian hero which is sort of <laughs> that's the worst, the worst I, I interpretation didn't ever oh. of his life i didn't want to know that <laughs> yeah, wow. it was. It's it, so we anyway. Uh, so that that that's the kind of co-opting that has been done to, uh, among other kinds of co-opting has been has been done to the uh, um, uh, to these people. Another kind of co-opting would be that we just simply. Uh, I mean, you can read certain parts of Thurman and say, if we just cultivate our internal spiritual sense, then that's that's kind of the job of a of a religious person. But that's not that's half his message. But it's not. Yeah. 
his entire message. And one would not want to read him that way. The genius of Jesus and the Disinherited is that it has both, it has all sides of his message, complex sides of his message contained in a, what is it, like 120 page text. It's yeah, very it's phenomenal. Text. It's phenomenal, You're right. That's great, that's great. Oh, th this is so rich. I'm, I'm aware of the importance personal relationships played in his life and as as much as he enjoyed sitting in his three-peat suit on the side of a desk in front of students and, and loved teaching um, he also met with people in private mm -hmm. and um, hearing Otis Moss Jr um, uh, I mean so many luminaries of, of the movement uh, they have their stories of um, when I was with Thurman yeah and um, uh, would you talk to, to that element of how he structured um, the, the word influence has become so gross and calculated and utilitarian. Um, uh, but I, 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 yeah, I, I want to find something that um, uh, speaks to what well, he used the metaphor of contagion yeah. um, that uh, to, uh, and almost his, his own definition of mysticism is uh, like that personal experience of the divine, which then becomes contagious. Um, would would you um, speak to some of those elements um, versus some of the uh, the the slick marketing um, of the religious industrial complex that goes on today? Yeah. So he um, uh, a couple of points come to mind. First is the point I raised earlier that I won't go over here, but his 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 role as he saw it as a kind of, as providing a place of refuge for people who are on the streets in the struggle and who mm. needed a place to come home and, and kind of uh, refuel themselves, that, that's part of it. Another one though comes from a, a story that um, I read, I forgot where it was now, that he's, he's um, I think someone else told the story, but he, he was talking to Jesse Jackson, who was one of his mentees in mm. the 1970s. And um, he says, who are you really? I know you're famous and all that, but I don't care about that. Who are you really? <laughs> mm. uh, and and that that just that that simple question that he would not let go of because he was trying to force Jackson in this case to uh, to kind of hone in on himself, separate and apart from his role as a public figure and his relationship with King and his being at Memphis in 1968, all that stuff. He wanted to say, who who are you? once you remove all of this apparatus that's kind of been built on, on, on top of you. And that's something that he did for people through his whole life. One of the frustrations of writing this book is uh, there's a lot of stuff he wrote about that. He wrote about, he wrote a lot of stuff about his personal counseling experiences, which he then destroyed. Mm -hmm. So we don't know in many cases, we don't know what happened uh, except for some memories that are, uh, preserved by people like Otis Moss or Jesse Jackson or Vincent Harding mm. or people like that who were his mentees. But he, for example, um, he spent a lot of time as a counselor to people who were uh, facing death. And uh, he took, and, and at one point he was talking about how that took so much time of his week, of his work week, that he didn't have time for the other stuff that he had planned on doing because he was going to hospitals, counseling family members, counseling people mm with terminal cancers, uh, counseling healthcare professionals. Uh, he was 
someone who spent a lot of time talking to doctors and nurses who face difficult situations and getting them to examine their own emotions that they had about those personal experiences. So this is, I don't know, maybe a third or so of his life that we know very little about because there's only a, a fraction of the, of the evidence that one would want to have has survived because he got rid of most of it. He considered it a, a breach of confidentiality if he had preserved that. Um, mm. So most of it. Uh, got burned in the 1970s. Wow. Yeah, phenomenal. Yeah, which says a lot about how deep this integrity for him was as well. Yeah, and nobody nobody knows anything about that part of his life. I didn't certainly, uh, but reading through his personal correspondence, and he's always getting letters from healthcare professionals that he had uh, talked to, and you get the idea that this was really important to him in a way that nobody uh, else at the time knew at all. Paul, I'm, I'm aware of the time and you've been so generous and this has been wonderful for us. Like, uh, as you can tell, we're just geeking out uh, the opportunity <laughs> to uh, discuss Thurman uh, with, with you. Um, and there's many other things that um, we'd like to explore, but in light of the time, um, I would li love to hear you talk to who do you see as um, continuing uh, Thurman's particular combination of uh, the contemplative and action um, uh, in the public sphere today. Um, and those who um, uh, wish to walk with them and um, what resources other than uh, your own text um, mm -hmm. or um, advice would you give as they explore his witness? Okay. So, um... Who would be carrying on his tradition now? That's a very good question that um, someone else asked me because I, I and I don't I don't really have I don't really have a direct answer to that. I, I can think of individuals who carry on some parts of his tradition, like a William Barber from North Carolina, for example, mm -hmm. certainly carry yes. on a part of that tradition, or um, uh, people who uh, speak to the kind of mystical sides of things that, that Thurman spoke to. Uh, someone who, who puts all of that together perhaps exists, but it's just not, I'm just not aware of who that might be. So I, I just don't know the answer to that question. Somebody else can um, probably answer that better than I can. But your second question, uh, what is the best way to get into Thurman? So for me, the best way is to, is to start with Jesus and the Disinherited mm. and read that and contemplate it a bit. Um, and then there are a list of, he, he, he in, ended up publishing about 22 other books or so. Uh, perhaps the best one of his later life is called In Search of the Common Ground, which was published mm. in 1971. <laughs> and it's a very interesting book because Thurman had been in conversation with some black power activists and they challenged him pretty strongly as you can well imagine sure. and th here's the thing about thurman they love thurman <laughs> these people who are challenging him they loved him because you couldn't not love him uh mm. but they also were like what common ground are you talking about right that that was a common view of those kinds of folk in the late 1960s but thurman respected where they came from and engaged them deeply in dialogue but at the same time, he had a profound belief in human unity and he would, and nonviolence, and he would never give that up. And he would never, and he, he defended that to his death, literally. Um, so that, I think that last book of his is very interesting because it's, it's a rather, by Thurman's standards, it's a rather pessimistic book. 
-hmm. I think Thurman got rather, I think he got more pessimistic in the last decade of his life than he was earlier. And I think living through the turmoil that he witnessed through the 60s and early 70s and what we now see as the beginning of the kind of polarization of American society that is very evident today. And uh, that that was becoming evident in the in the 60s and 70s. And, and for Thurman, it was disturbing because it uh, he did not see the, the deepest wishes that he had for American life. He did not see them coming to pass. So In Search of Common Ground is a book that tries to think through some of that, uh, um, some of those kinds of problems. And for those interested specifically in kind of uh, the, the, the kind of spiritual cultivation side of Thurman, um, he has a short book called Disciplines of the Spirit. And it's basically kind of a manual for um, how, to, how to cultivate yourself spiritually. It's still a very good, I have a friend who teaches at Harvard Divinity School, Stephanie Paulsell, who uses that book in her, in her classes still. Thank you so much. This has been really good. Um, I always tell folks that, you know, if whether you're thinking of King or even folks like Cone, right, to, that there is no Cone even without a Howard Thurman. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, Cone reflects on even him as, you know, he also writes on the spirituals and the blues and talks about even engaging and talking to Howard Thurman about his work on the spirituals mm-hmm. and just the respect that he had for him as well. And so, Um, It's just, um, anyway, so thank you so much for your research and your book on this and just for the conversation that we had around Howard Thurman. Um, I even picked up a few new things um, even from just this conversation. So I'm really grateful Mm. for that. Yeah, Yeah, thank you. So much more that could be said about about his life, but um, thank you very much for this opportunity. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Us too. Thank you, Paul. Take care. Take Take care. care. Bye-bye. The Inverse Podcast is proudly supported by you, the listener. And if you want to join the revolutionaries who are helping us have conversations about how this ancient text can still turn the world upside down, why don't you head over to patreon.com slash inverse.